0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. Next month, Australians will cast their vote in a constitutional referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. So, how do constitutional referendums work? How would a voice to federal parliament fit in with the ongoing moves to create treaties with First Nations groups at the state and territory levels? And do similar advisory bodies exist in other countries? Associate Professor Harry Hobbs is a constitutional law expert based at the University of Technology Sydney. He's spent time in Scandinavia studying the work of Indigenous advisory bodies that have existed for many years in this region.
1: It's not a brand new, unique institution. There are similar representative bodies for Indigenous peoples in different countries around the world. There's not a lot of them, but there are a few. The most obvious ones or the most common ones that have been discussed in the lead-up and the research about the voice Mm -hmm. are the Indigenous representative bodies for the Sami people in the Scandinavian countries of Norway, Sweden and Finland. They've been operating since the late 1980s and early 1990s. They're a bit like a voice in that they are an elected body for the Sami people of those countries and they Provide advice and input and representations to government and parliament. But they also have a service delivery function or a program delivery function. So they kind of do two things. They do a representative advisory work, but also deliver services and programs to Sámi people and Sámi communities up in the north of those countries.
0: And they provide advice to government. Is government forced to act on that advice or to accept that advice?
1: The government's not forced to act on that advice or accept that advice. So consistent with you know, parliamentary supremacy, the idea that we've got here in Australia that parliament is the ultimate Body that can determine what it wants to do, they have the same process there. So Parliament in Sweden, Norway, and Finland is not forced to do what the Voice says or the, what the Sami Parliament says. What they describe, what they say, but they do have some sort of transparency mechanisms that kind of try to encourage the Parliament to listen or the government to listen to the Voice a bit more deeply or a bit more seriously. What they've got in Norway is that there's a, a legal obligation on the government to kind of consider the advice, and they need to make a, leave a record in the cabinet documents saying, did we consider the advice or did we not? You know, If we didn't, why didn't we? If we did, how did that change our policy or our draft bill?
0: Acknowledging that our government system here in Australia is profoundly different from that in, in Scandinavia, has the Scandinavian experience been a successful one?
1: Yeah, so I think with anything like a political body that gives advice on a particular subset of the community, so an indigenous population, where the Sami people are even less of a proportion of the population of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are in Australia, obviously they're be very different. Sometimes the government listens and changes laws and policies. Uh, sometimes it doesn't, you know, like anything. Sometimes it, it works and sometimes it doesn't. You talk to people over there, people in the Sami parliaments, uh, representatives and, and other people in Sami communities, and they say, look, Generally speaking, their parliaments, their um, the Indigenous voices, their Indigenous representative bodies have led to better laws and better policies, but they don't win everything, right?
0: Now, the proposed voice to parliament here in Australia would only be able to make representations to government. In contrast, and these Scandinavian voices also have a, a service delivery function around activities associated with Sami culture.
1: Yeah, they are. So they do particular things related to culture and program delivery functions. Uh, One of the issues in the Sami communities is reindeer herding is a particular large industry or particularly important cultural industry. And so they deliver services and functions related to reindeer husbandry, basically. Make sure that if um, reindeer have been uh, killed by wolves or bears or what have you, there's compensation for the herders so they don't lose out on stock. And that function is Divided up by the Sami parliaments, the indigenous representative bodies for the Sami people rather than the government. So they've kind of devolved some level of service delivery. Uh, And there are a bunch of other things as well, like education and culture and these sorts of things.
0: And are these representative bodies, are these voices to parliament, are they embedded in the constitutions of these countries?
1: They're not embedded in the constitutions, but they have been operating since the late 1980s, early 1990s. So they're embedded in the political and legal culture is one way to describe it. So they've been there and operating for a long, long time and it doesn't look like there's any opportunity or any chance that they'll be uh, abolished. If anything, it looks like they're gradually becoming more supported and more recognised as securing a a significant benefit, not just to the Sami people, but also to the broader state. I mean, this is, again, is a government that uh, is not really composed of Sami people and they've got responsibilities to look after members of the whole country and so the Sami parliaments is what they call the indigenous representative bodies for the Sami people they kind of perform a government service in some ways where they say look we'll do the consultation we'll do the service to the Risaf, we'll explain what's most important and all we need is uh, you to listen to us at times and help us help our own communities so governments really see the value in it as well it's not just something for the Sami people it's something for the countries as a whole.
0: So was there a sort of a reconciliation aspect to it as well, a a kind of an acknowledgement of of the position of Indigenous people as well as the First Nations of those countries?
1: So yes and no. I think it's an ongoing process with with everything like on these issues or looking at Indigenous state relations. It is just an ongoing process. They initially emerged in Norway uh, at the culmination of a really large protest that wasn't just is Sami-led, but also got a lot of support throughout the country and internationally as well about the construction of a dam uh, that was going to destroy some Sami villages way up in the north of the country. This is the Alta Dam controversy. The dam was eventually built, but the government thought, you know, this was really difficult and really challenging, and we hadn't really thought of these issues before, you know, land rights issues, etc., for the indigenous people of the region. So we're going to have to do something different to engage them and bring them closer into our ordinary operation of governance and make sure that we can look after them in different ways.
0: Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. You can follow us on the ABC Listen app. Today, a conversation with constitutional law expert, Associate Professor Harry Hobbs. The 2017 Uluru Statement from the Heart calls for voice, treaty and truth. The federal government says it's committed to the full implementation of the statement, but not all at once. On the 14th of October, we'll all be voting in a referendum on whether or not we should have an Indigenous voice to Parliament enshrined in the Australian Constitution. The two other goals of truth and treaty are not relevant to this upcoming constitutional referendum. They'll be addressed at some point in the future. But totally separate from this federal process are ongoing negotiations to create treaties between state and territory governments and local Indigenous people.
1: Every single government in Australia, except for the West Australian government, has committed to pursuing a treaty process with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within their jurisdiction. And I think this is something that is often overlooked or people aren't aware of. But every single government, except Western Australia, has committed to talking treaty. Now, of course, there are different stages and different pace. Victoria is the first advanced. They kind of kick-started this process in 2016 when they initiated a number of consultations with Aboriginal people in the state, basically asking you know, do you want a treaty? What would it look like? That's gradually evolved into a statewide representative body, a bit like a voice to the parliament that we're going to vote on in October 14 and that First People's Assembly is what it's called, has been working with government over the last few years to try and develop and design the institutions and processes that are necessary to conduct the negotiations between Aboriginal people and the state 200 years after first contact, you know. And I think
0: the negotiations between the Victorian People's Assembly and the state government are going to start in a month or two. There is a kind of the idea at the federal level, as part of the Uluru Statement, there will be movement towards a treaty as well. There's something called a Makarata Commission.
1: Yeah, the Uluru Statement calls for a Makarata Commission, uh, which would supervise agreement making and truth telling, is what the Uluru Statement describes. Makarata is a word, a Yongu word, that sort of came into the national political culture in the 1980s when a um, previous Indigenous representative body that used to exist uh, in Australia, so prior to this voice, they decided that they were going to call for a Makarata rather than a treaty. They thought treaty maybe would scare some people. People or had sort of different political overtones to it or undertones to it, and they thought we need to come up with a different word that kind of Captures what we're looking for, which is a coming together after a struggle. And they came, came up with the word from their own language, which was Macarata. Now, the idea at the federal level is that a Macarata Commission would supervise these agreement making or treaty making processes around the country. It is important, though, that the Commonwealth doesn't just supervise but also gets involved in treaty making if we are going to go down this path. The Constitution divides powers between the states and the federal government. So there are certain issues that state treaties just can't include. You know, the Victorian government can only sign on to x number of things and you need the commonwealth government there as well to say okay well we will complement that by adding this other areas of jurisdiction that, that we are in charge of essentially
0: now i spoke recently with uh, michael mansell aboriginal lawyer from tasmania palawa man uh, and, and member of the the black sovereignty movement and and he says look he's voting no for the voice and says treaty is where it's at that would be more powerful than a voice to parliament how do you respond to that
1: well, I'm sympathetic to the view that people in the Black Sovereignty Movement want something strong or want something powerful. The Voice is a political institution, right? It's not going to have any legal power to compel government to change its policies or parliament to change its laws. You know, it's a, it's consistent with our constitutional traditions. It will advise the parliament, hopefully give good advice to parliament, which will lead to parliament changing its laws and government changing its policies. But it can't mandate that. I suppose the tr- promise of treaty is that it has um, more decision-making autonomy. Uh, it's that what would happen would be obviously at the local level, so it wouldn't be any control over government or parliament, but it would be at the local level for communities to really come up with uh, solutions to the problems that they face and, and to then to implement those solutions. But I see voice and treaty as complementary mechanisms. You know, it, it's just really impossible to say, OK, Indigenous group, Palawa, uh, Wurundjeri, Wuradjeri, negotiate with the federal government now about a treaty. The bargaining power is entirely unfair, right? So what will happen was an agreement that will be reached won't be a fair treaty either, it won't be a fair settlement because one side will have all the resources, all the power, all the authority, all the control, and the other side won't have any of that. And so the voice is sort of, in my understanding, the voice is a way for Indigenous peoples to build up a bit more resources, I suppose, get an understanding of what they want, what it might look like, and really sort of form their negotiating position at a more equitable level. The voice is essentially supposed to then advise government about how to build a Makarata Commission, how to ensure that it reflects Indigenous people's values and interests and not just the interests of the state. Now, this is what's happening in Victoria at the same time. So the First People's Assembly representative body has been established and it's working with government to design those institutions to make sure that a treaty process kind of reflects modern Australia rather than those treaties you might think in your mind, which is, you know, first contact, pre-colonial treaties between the British arriving and an Indigenous nation. We're not going to be able to do that anymore now, right? Our lives are so intertwined and modern society is so complex that you really need time and space for Indigenous peoples to be able to form an understanding of what they want and how they can go about doing it in their negotiating position and making sure that the process is much fairer.
0: So you say that WA is the only part of Australia that isn't working towards a statewide treaty, but they have in fact concluded a very comprehensive native title settlement with the Noongar people around the Perth region. And that's sometimes described as a a second-tier treaty, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I guess it's like a a lowercase t treaty. What it is, it's a native title settlement, the Noongar people of southwest Western Australia, that amounts to about $1.3 billion in value, the agreement. So it resolves native title claims um, across the southwest of Western Australia uh, in recognition of the Noongar people as traditional owners of that area. And it really is yeah, the largest native title settlement in our history. It affects about 30,000 Noongar people and covers some 200,000 square kilometres. And so people who are involved in the negotiations, so Roger Cook, he was the opposition leader at the time, he's described it as a, a classic treaty Colin Barnett, the Premier at the time, he's also seen it as really recognising Noongar self-determination, and Ken Wyatt has also called it a treaty as well. So this is sort of a a really comprehensive agreement. It's not sort of strictly a treaty because it wasn't negotiated through a formal treaty process, and so it kind of looks a little bit different to what we would expect a treaty today. It doesn't recognise self-determination to the same extent as the modern treaties in Canada, So treaty processes that are underway now in Australia will will look a bit different, but it kind of gets us as close as possible to a treaty without going through a treaty process. The significance or the importance, in my mind, is the fact that it shows that we can do these negotiations in Australia. There's no risk of division. There's no risk of a nation falling apart and breaking up because of these treaties. These aren't attempts to secede and create brand new countries. It's really an attempt for um, Indigenous communities and non-Indigenous communities to work out ways to share this land together and go forward as one country with just um, more recognition or different recognition of the fact of history.
0: So moving away from WA, what would be the impact on these state and territory treaty processes if the voice to parliament constitutional referendum fails?
1: Governments in Australia aren't going to sign on to treaties that they think the community and the electors aren't going to support. So my concern is that if the voice referendum fails, I think that some governments will think, look, there's not really many votes in Indigenous issues. We need to refocus our attention on things that we, you know, bread and butter issues that we think the vast majority of our electors, our constituents, will be interested in. So I think there's some risk that some of the energy in this space will will dissipate a little bit. At the same time, I think many Aboriginal people will particularly say, look, that failed, but uh, we need to refocus our attention on these treaty processes and make sure they continue. So it's a bit unclear at this stage, but I think there'll be pressure on... Governments will feel pressure to, to walk away, but I think there'll be also equal pressure to try and keep them at the negotiating table, I suppose.
0: To have a treaty, either at the state and territory level or even, you know, conceivably at the Commonwealth level... You don't need to change the constitution, do you?
1: No, you don't. So you could negotiate a treaty. Obviously, you can't do it tomorrow, right? It's a complex instrument, but you could negotiate a treaty. uh, And what would happen is that it would get its uh, force by enactment of legislation in Parliament. So the Victorian Parliament and the Commonwealth Parliament, as an example, would say, yes, we support this treaty and we're giving it legal force now. That means it's going to be subject to the Australian Constitution. It also means that it's subject to Australian law. So it, it can be changed by Parliament. Ideally, it wouldn't, right, because, or it wouldn't be done unilaterally because it's an agreement between two political communities, even though it gains its force by an, of an Australian law. But Australian law could always alter the treaty if it decided that it wasn't working.
0: And, uh, you know, basically uh, renege on it.
1: And renege on it, yes.
0: And I believe that at a state and territory level, the constitutions all around Australia except at the federal level, have been amended to recognise Indigenous Australians. And that's because, presumably, we have a federal constitution which is very hard to change, but we have state and territory constitutions which are very easy to change. Yeah,
1: so from around um, the early 2000s, every state and territory around the country, or every state around the country, changed its constitution, amended its constitution to formally recognise Aboriginal people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, as the first peoples of the country and of of their jurisdiction. The state constitutions can be amended by a simple act in Parliament. So you you don't need to remember this. You didn't vote on it in a referendum or a plebiscite. You didn't get a vote, right? This is a a simple act of Parliament where the government decided and the Parliament decided this would be a a good thing to do, to recognise Aboriginal people in the Constitution, Often what they did was they then had a subclause that said, this recognition is of no legal effect. So they didn't want courts to draw on that to then examine or uncover particular, you know, consequences of, of recognising Aboriginal people as the first peoples of the country. But then Aboriginal people would say, well, do you really recognise us if you then say this is of no legal effect? And so it's kind of, is a bit cynical, I think, more than anything else.
0: So coming back to the upcoming constitutional referendum on The Voice, to succeed... To change the Australian constitution, there needs to be a double majority. What does that mean?
1: So you need a majority of voters in the whole country. So 50% plus one of Australians need to vote in favour. But you also need a majority of voters in majority of states, which essentially means four out of six states also need to vote in favour.
0: And why is the Australian constitution designed to to be so hard to change and to alter was that part of the constitutional ne- negotiations way back before federation
1: yeah because the constitution is the essentially is a, a treaty it's a federation which is the latin word for treaty between six colonies And so part of the deal to get all of the colonies on board was that you needed to agree to certain things. And they said the small colonies, and I mean small in population, which were Western Australia, South Australia and Tasmania, they said, look, if we're going to join this federation, we need to make sure that you're not going to use your overwhelming numerical forces to change the bargain we've agreed to. So if you want to change the constitution, you don't just get a majority of people, you also need to get a majority of states to agree.
0: So how many constitutional referendums have there been in Australia since federation? And how many have been successful?
1: So there have been 44 referendums since Federation. The first one was in 1906. and 40, So 44, uh, 44 referendums since Federation. Uh, only eight of them have been successful, and the most recent successful referendums were in 1977, so a long, long time ago.
0: And how many were supported by a majority of voters but failed because they didn't have a majority in a majority of states?
1: Yeah, so we've had five times uh, the majority of the people have voted in favour of amending the constitution, but we haven't had four states vote in favour. Uh, and so the most significant one, I guess, on this sense was the simultaneous elections referendum in 1977, where 62% of the country voted in favour, uh, but only three states did. And so you look at the data and it basically if 5,000 people changed their vote in Western Australia, it would have got up.
0: Far and away, the most important successful referendum was in 1967. That was the one which uh, allowed the federal government to make laws for Indigenous people.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah, so the 1967 referendum had two changes. The first one was that it gave the power to the Commonwealth to make laws about Aboriginal people. Before then, only the states could make laws about Aboriginal people. The second important thing it did was that it also included Aboriginal people in the reckoning of the people of the Commonwealth of Australia, which basically means not that they wouldn't be counted in the census, but they'd be included in population counts when you're distributing the seats for the the country, for the House of Representatives.
0: It's seen as a, a hugely significant moment in the history of the nation, a very crucial and important step towards equality. Perhaps the second most significant successful referendum was in 1946. That was the one which allowed the federal government to establish social security.
1: Yeah, so after World War II, the Australian people had a new understanding or a new appreciation of what their government could do for them. And I think uh, the government also recognised that a lot of Australians had, had gone through hard times and they probably should be rewarded and they needed to be looked after in their old age and looked after in, in uh, disability and or what what have you. But the Commonwealth Parliament couldn't pass laws about Social Security at this time. They didn't have the power. They weren't given that power in the drafting of the constitution way back in the 1890s because that wasn't seen as something that government should do. So they had to go to the people and ask them to change the constitution to give them that power. So that 1946 one was probably the second most significant amendment we've had.
0: The last referendum was the failed Republic referendum in 1999. What lessons does it hold and what echoes are we seeing of that referendum in the current referendum on The Voice?
1: So in 1999, we had two referendum questions. One of them actually was a symbolic constitutional amendment about recognising Aboriginal people in the preamble of the constitution. And that one failed um, with only 39% of the vote. The other one, the one we all remember, is the one about establishing a republic, changing the constitution to make us a republic instead of a constitutional monarchy. In terms of what happened, I guess, links with the current referendum process, you can see that initially, I believe, the Support for republic was quite high, but it declined over the course of the campaign. A, a bit similar to the referendum that we're having to next month about an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice to Parliament. Um, but I think some of the lessons that people learned is relate to how much detail you should include in the referendum. And so people thought there was too much detail in the republic referendum, and that got people offside because number, a number of people might say, "Look, I want a republic, but I don't want this model. I don't want this kind of republic. So I'm going to vote no." And I assume there'll be another chance for a republic referendum in a few years, and that'll be on my model, and I'll vote yes then. So people involved in this referendum campaign have had less detail. They've certainly got quite enough detail uh, for, for many people to make their decision and enough detail for, for me to make my decision to vote yes. But they don't have the detail about what the model will look like, what the voice will look like. Uh, and I think they've learned that lesson from the Republic referendum. But maybe it seems that some Australians are saying, look, we want even more detail before we can vote Yes.
0: That conundrum about how much detail to provide, too much in the Republic referendum, perhaps some might argue too little in the the voice referendum?
1: I think so. There's been a common argument that people aren't sure what the voice will look like, how many members there'll be and what powers they might have. I would say all that detail is already available and it's subject to Parliament to make it the ultimate determination so it can always be changed. But some people have said they want that detail. But I think the challenge is as soon as you give some detail, people will say, look, I don't like that particular model and therefore I'm going to vote no. So it it is a conundrum that is not easily resolved. If
0: the voice referendum fails, what does this mean for the future? Some people have described this as a one shot in the locker. What's your view?
1: I think the lesson from the failed republic referendum is that we won't have another referendum on constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples for 30 years at the earliest. I think this will be it. I do think it is a one shot in the locker.
0: And what about the idea that maybe we might have a second referendum just on solely on Indigenous recognition in the constitution without a voice?
1: I don't think that'll happen. I think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been clear that if there's going to be constitutional change, it needs to be more than symbolic. A referendum on recognising Aboriginal people in the constitution uh, and doing no more, like we've got at all the state and territory level, really it does nothing. And they've said, we don't, we're don't, we not going to accept that. I think it will be really hard to go through all the expense, the time, the effort, the cost of putting on another referendum for a change that the beneficiaries say we don't want.
0: I think Marcia Langton said something along the lines recently is, if you tick no, you're not ticking next time.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think ticking no, you're not ticking next time for sure.
0: How important is bipartisan support in a successful referendum result?
1: So every referendum that succeeded, all eight of them, have had bipartisan support. On that basis, it's critical. And I think uh, looking at the First Nations voice, the, the, the politics that led up to the referendum, you could see for many many years, many months, the whole focus was designed to try to get bipartisan support. Earlier on in the early Around 2015, the proposal was looking at a racial non-discrimination clause to prevent the parliament from passing laws that would discriminate on the basis of race. Our parliament can pass laws that discriminate on the basis of race. And so the focus was, let's get rid of that, because it's only ever been used to discriminate against Aboriginal people. Uh, The coalition government at the time said, look, we're not going to be interested in supporting any clause that could be considered a a one-clause Bill of Rights or any amendment that could be a one-clause Bill of Rights and would involve judges. So Aboriginal people went back to the drawing board and thought, is there something else that we can develop or design that will avoid judges and keep the coalition in the tent? And their idea was a voice, an idea to speak to Parliament, provide advice, provide representations that could be considered or could be ignored, wouldn't involve judges. Unfortunately, for the proponents of the reform, the coalition have subsequently said they're going to vote no anyway, and so the sort of search for bipartisanship uh, has faltered, unfortunately, and that makes it very difficult to win referendums. Now, you know the the idea that bipartisanship is important, I think, is true. It bears, it's borne out from the evidence, but also we haven't had a referendum since 1999, and we haven't had a successful one since 1977. So some of the lessons we we can draw from the referendum history may be a little bit out of date.
0: And what other factors influence the likely success or failure of a referendum?
1: Yeah, so probably the, the best book on this is by George Williams and David Hume, uh, and they've said also important are things like popular ownership, uh, popular education, you know, a sensible proposal, and the idea that the referendum process is updated, I suppose, made more modern. And and so they're the other four things that they think are really important. So making sure that people understand what the proposal is, that it comes from the people rather than coming from politicians, uh, and that it uh, responds to a, a genuine problem that exists and in a clear and simple way.
0: And how do you think the voice referendum question and campaign is travelling when it comes to those factors that you're identifying?
1: In my own view, I think the proponents of the voice have done a really good job of making sure that it's um, a community orientated campaign. It came from the referendum regional dialogues, which were held all around the country in 2016 and 2017. It seems, in my view, to have uh, community ownership and popular ownership rather than be seen as a, a proposal come from government or directed by by politicians to the people. I also think it's a sound and sensible proposal and that it responds to a genuine need, which is the inability or the difficulty that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have to speak to government and have their voices heard and their interests considered when laws and policies about them are being debated and implemented. I worry about the popular education. I think the fact is many Australians don't know anything about our constitution Ultimately, I think that's a good idea. I think we're, it's, it's good we live in a society where you don't need a copy of your constitution when you walk out your front door to go to the shops. You know, No one's going to stop you and ask you for it or ask you questions about it. But it does mean when you want to change the constitution, uh, there's two steps. The first step is explaining to people that we have one and, and why it's important and what it says, and then also then making a case for why we need to change it. And I think that can be really difficult, as this referendum appears to be showing.
0: Associate Professor Harry Hobbs, a constitutional and human rights lawyer based at UTS, University of Technology, Sydney. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. No worries. Thank you, Damien. That's The Law Report for this week. Don't forget, you can follow us on the ABC Listen app. Also available via the Listen app is a brilliant podcast with Carly Williams and Fran Kelly. The Voice Referendum Explained. They really do cut through the noise about the upcoming referendum and give you the information you need to make an informed vote. That's all we have time for today on The Law Report. A big thanks to producer Christina Kukoglia and also to audio producer Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You
0: can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.